0: Morning again, everyone. So, when I was a kid, whenever I uh, thought on, on that verse about being ready to give an answer, um, that phrase right there about, about being ready to give an answer, that, that always really, really stood out to me and always, you know, just I, I got kind of excited about that one, honestly, um, because for me, I Honestly, I think I kind of misunderstood what it was going for uh, because I always liked to, to know stuff. I like to have the answer. I like to accumulate knowledge. I like to have facts and figures and, and okay, I guess that really hasn't changed that much. But especially then when I was a kid, I, I liked to just know stuff. I like to be able to have an answer. And so whenever I heard this verse, I usually completely ignored the context of it. And I really focused in on that phrase, always being ready to give an answer. And whenever I thought of that, I thought of it in terms kind of like Bible Bowl. And I think I've mentioned this before, but I always kind of had a a, a bit of a love hate relationship with Bible Bowl stuff as a kid. Um, Because on one hand, you know, remember, you know, reading something and then remembering the details. You know, I was actually kind of good at that. And so it was easy for me. I found some success there. And so on one hand, I really liked Bible Bowl stuff because it was something that just I found some success and I, I, I liked it because it was easy for me. But on the other hand, I kept being bothered by, you know, this idea of, uh, you know, competition based on Bible knowledge seemed, you know, every once in a while I think, okay, isn't this a little bit, you know, antithetical to the, the nature of the kingdom of God? Probably didn't use the word antithetical when I was 12, though. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, but I, every once in a while it would hit me, okay, wait, my standing in the kingdom It isn't based on what we know, but it's based on who we know. And and a Christian life isn't one of performance, but one of, of perseverance. But still, I had in my mind this idea that I needed to be ready to give answers. I needed to know as much as I could know, and that was my goal for so long. But I never stopped to really think, okay, ready to give an answer to what question? Because see, it wasn't obscure Bible trivia that I was so good at, those weren't really the answers that I needed to be prepared to give. I needed to be ready to give an answer for my hope. Maybe I was ready to answer the wrong question. In fact, I know that for a long time, I was ready to give answers to really a lot of wrong, less important questions. Maybe part of that because the right question was really never asked of me that much. Now, I'm pretty sure it was no fault of my teachers or mentors or other spiritual leaders that were in my life and that were trying to teach me and train me. If I'm really brutally honest with myself, I can't help but think that maybe it was because my life never raised the question why do you have such hope? What if I had been different? Now, I mean like really different. What if the life that I lived was so distinctive, so unusual, that people couldn't help but ask me, okay, what's going on with you? Why do you live this way? Why do you have this, this hope? All over Scripture, we see instances where people but couldn't help but ask the question. In this passage we read in 1 Peter just a little while ago, you have to remember that this was in a context of when the church was in the midst of great struggle and turmoil. There was great persecution coming from the outside. Yet, it's just assumed here When it says, always prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Peter is just assuming here that someone's going to ask this question. If you're living the kind of life that was described, I'm not going to read this whole passage again, but if you're living that kind of different life, somebody's going to be asking you about it. It's assumed that the question will be asked. People are going to see them and say, you, you suffer so much for what you believe. How do you have such hope? Things are so bad for you, but you're so hopeful in your day-to-day life. How is that possible? It would be seen as so strange, so different, that people couldn't help but ask the question. There are so many times when something unusual like that happens. People are going to ask questions. Can't help but think of things like, you know, on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes upon the apostles there and all these crazy things started happening and a crowd gathers just because they want to know what's happening. It draws attention. They want to know what in the world is going on with these guys. In, in Acts 13, I love when you know, Paul's in, in Pisidian, and Antioch, and, and that, when they're first there, they're in the synagogue and they're given an opportunity to speak. And after they're given that opportunity, they say something that's so unexpected they say something that's so unusual to be heard in that synagogue that when they ask them to come back and speak about it the next week, like the whole city shows up. Everybody shows up. everybody wants to hear, like, something different is going on here. Something odd is happening here, and they want to hear what it is. They want to know what in the world is going on. Think about on Mars Hill when... Paul is there, and, and there are all these people that, that gather together. They love hearing about some new thing. That's what they spend their days talking about. And they think, hey, this guy is coming, teaching us about some foreign God. They, they wanted to ask questions. There was something new. There was something different. People are just naturally curious, especially when they witness something that's unexpected, when you catch them off guard. Like the Philippian jailer in, in Acts 16 You know, first off, he'd been sitting there guarding these guys, Paul and Silas, who have just been thrown in prison for what they've been doing in the name of God. And what does he hear them doing, of course, but singing, praising God. Now, if that wasn't strange enough, a little bit later in the story, he finds out, oh no, big trouble, doors are open, chains have been loosed, He's sure that all of these prisoners will have escaped and his life is on the line. In fact, he's so certain of it, he's getting ready to just take his own life rather than face the wrath of his superiors. And Paul says, no, no, we're here. We're all here. Not only were they singing when they were in chains, but when they were released from chains, when they had such an amazing, extreme opportunity of self-interest, they didn't take it. And so, of course, he, asked, he starts asking some serious questions. And in fact, the first words we see out of his mouth as recorded in Acts 16 is, okay, oh, what must I do to be saved? Because <laughs> you know something that I need to know. I've heard you singing praises to this God. I've, he probably heard them teaching the other prisoners that were in that prison with them who apparently they didn't leave either. He saw something so unusual that he couldn't help but ask questions. Now, you may look back at these first century situations, especially the situation the church was in in 1 Peter, and say, okay, now those, those answer givers in 1 Peter, they were in a hostile environment. They faced persecution and hardship and, and struggle, and well, we don't really live in that context. And don't get me wrong, some, you know, even in this room have endured hardship and struggle. Or even facing it today, and have done so with faithfulness and steadfastness. But regardless of what our struggles are, sometimes we can look back at that first century context, we can see that persecution of the early church and say, Well, okay, we're not facing like violent opposition to our faith like they were, like these Christians were in First Peter. In this culture of, of Christendom that we live in, can anything we do really stand out? Can anything we do really be all that different? Can we really live in such a way that the question would even be asked of us? Since people are so casually familiar with what a Christian life should look like. I think the only way that we really could blend in is if we let the culture define our terms. I heard heard David Platt in a talk he gave recently said, Are you a Christian according to how the world defines one or how the Bible defines one? Ouch. <laughs> Let's say that again. Are you a Christian the way the world defines one or the way the Bible defines one? You see, there are a lot of people that think they know what the church is about and have defined what a Christian is, and a lot of us do a very good job of living up to a cultural expectation of what a Christian looks like. And so no one asks us why we have hope because we're just doing exactly what they think we're supposed to do. If our lives, though, were really different, if, they, if our lives were defined by love, if we were living out what Jesus said, okay, here's what sums it all up for my people, for my kingdom. Love God with everything you've got and love everybody else too. <laughs> love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If we really lived those commands we would look weird. <laughs> in fact, that's, that's not a strong enough word. If we really lived that way, people would question our sanity, I'm pretty sure. People would say, what is wrong with those people? That they would do that. If we really loved our neighbor as ourselves, and let's, let's go a little more specific there, if we really loved our enemies, and not just love them in words, and you know, like, oh, you're my enemies, and God says love you, so love, here, yeah, I love you. No, that's, no. (laughs) But love them in what we do. Over in Romans, chapter 12, starting in verse 9, Paul says, "'Love must be sincere. "'Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. "'Be devoted to one another in love. "'Honor one another above yourselves. "'Never be lacking in zeal, "'but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord.'" Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Sounds pretty good so far. But then he switches gears. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. What if we lived, I mean, if we could just live those like, I don't know, 10, 12 verses. If we could agree to do that, we could just go home now. <laughs> if we could just live like that, brief description. Wow. Or maybe a good summary would be 1 John 3.18 when it says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Now what if we were to really live like that? If each and every one of us, as part of this outpost of the kingdom of God we call Crossroads Church of Christ... If everyone in this family were to be defined in every day, every situation, we were defined by a radical, godly love. For one another, yes. For our neighbors, yes. For the stranger, yes. Even for the enemy, yeah, them too. Whatever that enemy may look like, whatever they may be. You have to say, if we really live that way, it might be tempting to stay put for a while. I mean, think about it. Who would want to leave that environment? If every time we came together, we were all practicing such amazing radical love, I think I'd want to hang out with you guys a lot. Don't you think? (laughs) But the more I think about it, the more I realize, well, maybe not. I think that if we're a little bit better than the rest of the world around us. If we're a little bit better, if we love a little bit more, and we feel a little bit safer here, well, that's probably what would cause us to want to huddle up and just stay with us just to experience that extra little bit of love and compassion and kindness. Because things are a little bit better in here than it is out there. But you see... The kind of radical love that God shows us, if we really lived by it, if we were really defined by it, we couldn't help but be sent out into every dark corner, wherever it's needed the most. We would come together to spur one another on toward love and good works or good deeds, like it tells us in Hebrews 10, in order that we could go out and just be love in the world. We couldn't help it. If we loved like God loved I don't think we would just show our love in here, but we would live where that answer isn't known. That answer for the hope that we have within us, we would be out there in the world. Because, you know, it doesn't really do anyone any good to be ready to give an answer where no one's asking the question. Because guess what? If you're ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you, and I'm ready to give an answer for the hope that's in me, and it's the same answer, and it's the same hope, I'm not going to ask you the question. (laughs) You're not going to ask me. Peter says, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks about the hope that's in you. He's expecting that the question will be asked, but if I'm Only spending time with others who have the same answer for the same hope. We're not going to be asking. There's an expectation that we will be living our lives of love somewhere where people don't already know the answer. So, where do we live our lives of love? Where, you know, who do we live our weird, bizarre, sanity questioning lives among? Where do we let our lives be a billboard for the gospel? I'm pretty sure that it's not just in this room, or in this building, or just among these people. First and foremost, I think we have to live that life of radical, crazy love among the unchurched. Now, I have heard that term come up in some conversations a couple times recently, but just to, to define terms here, that because that's that's kind of a churchy and like missiologist kind of word. That's kind of an academic word. The unchurched simply means those who, well, aren't us, because you're here. You're, you're, in, you're in church this morning, and there's a lot of people out there who have had some exposure to some kind of church preaching some... St- story about Jesus that have had that exposure, that understand the church culture and the basic message of the gospel, but then there are those in this world who just don't. They just haven't had the experience that we're sharing today. They're far outside the kingdom, maybe looking in, probably not. Um, maybe a shorthand for this is the, you know, the unchurched, you know they would be the ones that could say, like, oh, we didn't know. You know and then the church are the ones that you know, should probably know better, but that's another sermon. I don't have really any kind of research, admittedly, to back this up. But I would assume, or suspect at least, that most of the unchurched around us are unchurched by choice. A lot of people, they think they kind of know, have a pretty good idea of what the church is all about. And honestly, they just don't want to have anything to do with it. They don't want to have any part of it. Thank you very much. They've got their opinions on what Christianity is about and they're fine staying distant from it. Oh, but what a real, like a real Christian life can do when it crosses a path of someone like that. Not to cross their path to tell them why they're wrong. Not just to cross their path long enough to yell some, hurl some insults their way to judge them, but if a real life defined by love crosses their path in order to show them love the way only someone in the kingdom of God should be able to show them love, now honestly, they're probably not going to suspect that it's Jesus. (laughs) If they have these preconceived notions and these assumptions about what it means to be a Christian and what the church is like, if we really showed someone that kind of radical love, they'll never see it coming. (laughs) They will not have any inkling that this is something being done in the name of Christ. And by the time they get so curious to find out why you're doing what you're doing, why you're loving them the way you love them, well, then it's probably, you know, by the time you tell them, oh, it's Jesus, well, by then it's too late. (laughs) Their barriers and their preconceptions and their prejudices, well, they're probably not going to hold any more water. They've been so riddled with holes by your love for them that everything that they may have thought The church was about, you have shown them something different. Of course, they're not the only ones we need to to live our love in front of. There's also some who do come together inside of these walls with us. And I'm speaking specifically about our youth, about the next generation, those who would come after us then maybe they know a little bit about this church thing that we do, but maybe they don't yet know the answer to that question. Why do you have hope? We've got to live our faith in front of the next generation. In fact, take a little farther, we need to live our faith toward that next generation. It can be very easy for us grown-ups to live in a very insular adult world. We can spend all of our time teaching and exhorting and encouraging and, and fellowshipping other adults. People that are just like us. People that it's easy to be around and it's comfortable to be around. We spend all of our, times with the other, all of our time with, with other adults and we lift each other up so far. And then we look around and wonder why the kids fade away when they're not kids anymore. Probably because they didn't hear our answer. Probably because they didn't know to ask the question. Now, I just want to ask you a question, and I'm, I'm seriously asking you this question. I want you to really think about this. I don't need you to give me an answer now, but you need to answer this for yourself. Are you a spiritual mother or father or big brother or big sister to someone who is not in your own family? Are you? I don't think enough of us are. But I want you to, if, if you say, like, well, no, not really. Really? I want you to hear, hear something like, I don't, I don't, even, I don't even know how, to, how I would do that. I mean, who, where would I even be needed? How could I even do that? Well, here's something simple just to get you started. Take your age, whatever it is, and then subtract 10 from it. And then subtract another 10 and another until you run out of 10s to subtract. If you're under 10, sorry, this is an exercise for the grown-ups. Um, but, but chances are, at each one of those points, or you know, pick another number. I don't care what the number is. At each one of those ages under yours, somewhere around that age, there's probably someone, probably even someone here, maybe even here today, that needs to see your faith. Someone that needs to have the love of God expressed to them through you. The generation that comes after you, whatever generation that may be, they need to see a life that raises that question. Why do you have such hope? They need to see your life so clearly that they know you and they know what you're going through and they see you holding on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they can't help but look at you and say, wow, why do you have hope like that? They need to hear and even see your answer to the only question that really matters. In a lot of ways, we should be Velcro, actually. Velcro, there you go. Don't want to get in trouble with anybody. Hook and loop fastener, as the generic name would be. Have you ever really looked at Velcro before? It's really kind of ingenious and fascinating stuff. You see... It's all these little tiny little, like, get it, look at it up close, get a magnifying glass or something, look at it up close. It's all these tiny little plastic flexible loops, or hooks, sorry. And then on the other side, all of these tiny little, this mass of little weak threads, these little loops of thread. Neither of them are very strong, honestly. They're just not. But when you put them all together, like if you took one of those hooks and one of those loops and put it together and tried to get it to hold on to something, you know, they might not even hold their own weight, honestly. But if you get all of those put together, all of those hooks grabbing onto all of those loops, it holds pretty firm. It takes some real effort to pull them apart. And I really think that by the time a child spends 18 years or even less than that, really, among the family of God, they should have so many little connections of of love lived in front of them. They should have so many connections to the family of God that they find it almost impossible to pull themselves away. Yeah, it can still happen. I'm not going to say this is some sort of magic bullet. But there should be so many connections between every generation of the church that when someone grows up, in this family, that it should be so hard to pull away from it. And if it's easy, that's on us. If it's easy to walk out these doors and not come back, God help us. That's on us. If we haven't taken the time to be connected to someone else who needs to see the love of God live through you, God help us. If we have not lived the gospel before them, And honestly, we might even find that it's just as good for us as it is for them. It's amazing how focused your life can get when you realize someone's watching. When you realize someone's depending on you. When you realize, hey, these kids, old and young, that I'm trying to connect to and invest my life with, you know, they're learning how to treat each other, how to solve problems, how to understand the love of God. They're, under, they're learning that from watching me. It's amazing how focused we can get in our own lives. But you know, I've said all of this, and there's a really big assumption in all of it. There is one other question that's raised by this whole topic. And that is that we actually know the answer. <laughs> Talked a lot about the question and how to live a life so that the question is raised, how to live a life where the question will actually be asked because they don't already know the answer. But do we actually know the answer? I'm not always sure that we do, honestly. But here it is. (laughs) Plain and simple, or at least in a bit of a metaphor. And I know I've talked about this before, about watching football on Thursday, I think it 's been a couple of years ago. I mentioned the story, but there was a time um, when Christy and I lived in Maine. Um, there was a period of a few years though that you know, we didn 't have television or really. we didn 't have cable and didn 't yet have the antenna that we have now to pick up stuff over the air um, but you know I, I really still wanted to be able to see you know some, some football games, especially you know we were in New England it was like expected, and I think possibly required by law to watch the Patriots. And so I needed to see what was going on. I didn't know what was happening. And so what I would do, and I didn't have to tell, I couldn't watch it on Sunday, really. Um, and so I had somebody that would record the game for me, and I would get a recording of the game, but usually I wouldn't be able to get it until like maybe Monday or Tuesday. Wednesday evenings were always occupied with church stuff. And so it would usually be like Thursday evening was the time that I actually got to watch the game. Um... But you see, one, other, one little wrinkle in that plan, one little downside of that plan, um, was that even though didn't have television, I was always a, a fan of um, ESPN show, you know, Pardon the Interruption, and even though I didn't have cable or anything to see it, um, I did, there was the, the PTI podcast, so I could listen to the show um, pretty much every weekday. But you see, that means that Monday, they talked about the game that I wasn't going to be listening to till Thursday. Um, so, which... You know, I liked being up on things, I enjoyed the show and all that, but that meant that when I watched that recording of the game on Thursday, I already knew who won. Every tense moment, every bit of struggle that a team might have had, I didn't sit quite as far to the edge of my seat as I might have if I was watching it on Sunday. You see, I didn't have to worry about the outcome as much as I would ever worry about the outcome of a football game. But I, because the outcome was not in question. I knew the final score. Brothers and sisters, we know the final score. There is no reason for us to lose hope because we know the end of the story. The end of the story was written and was passed down to us before we were even born. We're watching this game, this life play out before us, but we know how it ends. There's a reason for hope right there. Victory has already been won. Your victory, your victory, my victory has already been won. And so we have hope. We know the end of the story and so that is how no matter what comes our way, we can give an answer for the hope that's in us because we can say, I know how this story ends. Because Jesus Christ has paid the price for my sin. I know how this story ends because God has loved me so extravagantly that I don't have to worry anymore. Now you might say, now is is that answer a little simple? Maybe a little too simple? I don't think if we really, really know it, we'll find it that simple at all. Recently, I heard someone say, in the Bible, knowledge is more than cognitive answers, or excuse me, cognitive awareness of facts. It's personal contact with the truth embodied in Jesus Christ. When we have more than just a knowledge of facts, but instead we have personal contact with the truth, capital T, truth, in the person of Jesus. When we know deeply like that, well then I think we're ready to give an answer. In Ephesians chapter 3, Starting in verse 14, this is Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now listen to this. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, there's love again, I pray that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all, full, all the fullness of God. Did you hear that? Know this love that surpasses knowledge. Paul wants them, he wants us to know a love so deeply that it's beyond knowledge. Because just knowing things, just the facts of the situation aren't going to be enough. This love is too big. But he wants us to know something that surpasses knowledge, which means we've got to know it deeply, outside of our heads, into our hearts. And I love... And Paul just says something that just, I think it just blows his own mind so much that he just bursts into prayer and says, now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than, ask, than we can ask or imagine, according to his power that's in work, at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Paul just gets this glimpse of like, wow, this is what the, the Spirit just led me to talk about this love that is so deep, so wide, that for us to know it, it's beyond knowledge. Only God could do that. If we know the answer deeply, our answer is not so simple after all. It's amazing. But I know there are still times when maybe we're afraid to be asked the question. And I wonder if the fear that we experience sometimes isn't for lack of knowledge, but for lack of relationship. Because, see, if someone were to come up to me right now, skip the slide, sorry. If someone were to come up to me right now, I mean, don't, I'm not done yet, but and, and, and ask me, like, tell me about someone you love. I wouldn't say, okay, hang on, I need to go to the library for a little bit. <laughs> I, need to, I need to pull up Wikipedia, I need, I need to Google a few things. No. If someone says, tell me about someone you love, Of course, I'm ready to give an answer. I don't have to go do some research, go study to prepare my answer to that question. Because it's someone that I love. Because it's knowledge that I hold deeply in my heart. Do you want to know him like that? Do you want to know Jesus so deeply that any time someone comes up to you and says, Tell me about this Jesus. Who is this? Tell me about your hope. Why do you live the way you live? We can be ready to give that answer if he really is someone that we love. If we know him like that. If we know him deeply, we can't help but make him known. Because I promise he knows you. And if you don't know him today, or don't know him as you should, if your knowledge about him is in your head and hasn't penetrated your heart yet, I know he's calling you to something more. Because his knowledge of you is far beyond the facts and figures. His knowledge of you is so deep that he said, hey, you're worth everything to me, so I'm going to die for you. That's how deeply he knows you, how deeply he loves you how deep His love is that gives us such a deep hope. So if you today want to get yourself ready to give that answer for the hope that's in you, come receive that hope. Come and receive Christ. Confess Him as your Lord and Savior, as the Son of God who died and raised again on the third day. Take on His death, burial, and resurrection, His new life as you're baptized into His name so that you can be His child, so that you can live that hope today. If there's anything that you need from us that we can help you to recapture that hope and be ready to give that answer, please come and let us know while we stand and while we.